Welcome to this edition of the Design Talk podcast. We are joined today by Niall Flaherty, a technology educationalist or an educational technologist in UCD with a deep interest in accessibility for learning. Niall has been involved in developing teaching practice guidelines for the design of learning experiences and teaching materials and teaching approaches. So, Niall, over to you. Hi, Alan. Uh, Thanks for having me on. So the audience in, in UCD, the audience for accessible learning is, is everyone in the sense that when we talk about accessibility, uh, we're not talking about recognized disabilities as such, or we're not talking about people who might have a recognized disability. We're talking about the difficulties that people might have in accessing or using a piece of content or a service. So accessibility issues kind of affect everyone It's an understanding that it was developed from a sort of a famous story in design where the American Air Force were redesigning a cockpit and all kinds of careful measurements were made of the arms and the forearms and the hands and the legs and the spines of all of their their pilots to arrive at a perfect cockpit, which ultimately uh, suited no one. It was the average user they were looking for. And we've, we've become more and more aware of the idea that there is no such thing as an average user. Uh, so while uh, certainly we recognize that people have disabilities which are very particular uh, to them, everybody experiences accessibility difficulties. And so when we talk about uh, access in terms of accessibility, we're really talking about all the kinds of difficulties people might have when they they want to access content. And so if we were to, again, go back to the idea of the average user, uh, you might you might think of an average user as somebody who doesn't have a recognizable difficulty. The context is very important. While with an endless amount of time and uh, familiarity with the system, you might uh, be well able to find any piece of information you wished. If you had to find that information while you're running up the stairs or running for a meeting or you're under pressure or the, the building is on fire, that changes things. And, and, um, and it really doesn't uh, isn't a bad idea for people who um, provide content and process content to be conscious of the difficult contexts people can be in when uh, they want to access that information. And so that that's what encourages us to think of accessibility in a universal uh, sense. You remind me of the idea, let's say your cockpit example, the average user isn't any user, um, and yet the simple means of having a sliding chair or an adjustable chair height addresses a range of users. Similarly, with a web page, the scalable font, the zoom, the level of zoom allows us to configure it to our particular needs, doesn't it? Absolutely. So much like the design example led to customizable uh, cockpit design for um, so that you could change your environment to suit yourself, we see the idea of being able to change font height X height or, or just uh, font size as being uh, something that we should be able to control. Sometimes that's made available within the, the interface of a web page. And certainly it's a, it is a, a recognized guideline that it should be uh, to reach a certain level of um, verification in terms of the, the AAA kind of measurement of W3C's AAA uh, accessibility guidelines. But it's also possible within the browser to resize your text. And so uh, having access, the important thing is that you would have access to changing or customizing uh, visual scenes so that they meet your needs. That's one of the, the things that's suggested within under, uh, Universal Design for Learning, that 
delivery of content should be uh, wrapped up in something which is ultimately customizable by the user. Okay, so um, having something that is configurable so that we're not imposing and creating a barrier, that we're creating material that's universal in content that can be customized according to the mode of interaction. Absolutely. I mean, um, there's been a longstanding understanding that that uh, people have different needs and that we can provide for them, but there mightn't have been an expectation on instructors that they would have provided for them in advance. And so that, that's a kind of a, a bit of a change. I remember when I was teaching myself, sometimes contacted by students who say, I wonder, could I have slides before the class so I might kind of uh, print them out or blow them out? I find it very helpful. And I have to admit that before I got uh, communications like this, I wasn't quite as aware of the fact that uh, those kinds of things were being done for students. And over time, I've learned a lot more about it. But not only to become aware of the fact that students needed the, the slides sometimes in advance, uh, they needed them to be in customizable formats. So you couldn't really give them to through them in a, in a PDF, which is already could be perhaps highly formatted. It was better if it was in something like a PowerPoint file where they'd have that control themselves. And, and you realize then the compatibility of the file is important and, and, and all kinds of concerns start to come in so you can learn it that way the hard way as it were or or um through the application of of design principles you can you can hopefully uh, help yourself uh, see these things in advance uh, guilty as charged in the past i've been slow to release slides or not providing uh speaker notes or provided stuff in pdf format you know one, one particular problem i had was as a, as a young uh, teacher was, was the, the, the idea that, you know, my, my learning uh, materials that I provide to students are in a sense privileged, you know, they're between me and the student and uh, the idea of putting them on a learning management system or, or providing them ahead of time felt in a way sort of somehow compromising to that relationship. And uh, maybe you didn't feel like the institution should have control over those things, you know, and, but um, over time, you, you really do see that there's, there's, a, there's a lot more benefits than problems with, with sharing the content though I, f- I fully understand that some people might feel uncomfortable. But usually I'd have to admit that uh, there'd often be the case where I simply wouldn't have those resources available in a very finished format uh, in advance, uh, especially if I was delivering a course for the first time or if it's been changed or something like that. You know, you'd be, you'd be moving uh, quite fluidly. It wouldn't always be available. Those, I think, are issues of the uh, environment as opposed to the individual and how we make sense of them as a profession in dialogue with our students, because you wouldn't normally, as you say, think of students who have the needs and we don't know what their needs are. And we only really are made aware of students who've disclosed particular needs and, and treating them as exceptions. But what you're suggesting is they shouldn't be treated as exceptions at all. The norm should be everything in an accessible format. Ideally, um, everyone wouldn't have to come one after another to present their particular difficulty. So it is something you can kind of learn. I suppose you just you just feed it back into the next kind of content creation cycle that you're doing and you, and you realize, okay, uh, this time I'm going to use uh, some kind of format where I, I can be fairly, fairly sure that I'm not going to have to uh, produce this in, in a number of different ways. So, that, so that's kind of the holy grail for content creators, isn't it? To have one authoritative source for the content that they're working on, be it slides, be it uh, uh, written material, recordings and the like. But to have that available in some way for all users 
And this touches on the notion of the HTML, the CSS, the JavaScript, the responsive design, different platforms. A responsive design kind of solves a lot of these problems, doesn't it? Well, uh, yeah, certainly in the in the online uh, in the online world, let's say um, the uh, the conception of something like uh, responsive design is very helpful. Sometimes referred to as mobile first. I'd say the universal design principles that we discussed broadly applied are good uh, top level ways of of thinking about how maybe an existing piece of content could be changed. You could apply the universal design principles uh, and ask yourself, does this piece of content meet those principles or, or is there something that could be addressed there? So universal design operates in a way as, as a, a top-down guiding uh, series of principles which um, you can apply to uh, a design problem. Responsive design is uh, more like a design methodology that's rolled into content creation. And so, you know, when you you have a word and it ends with design, it's it's possible to see them as different flavors of design, but responsive design is more of a methodology. Okay. So the the seven principles of of universal design are very broad, very general, whereas responsive design is an instance of uh, a solution, essentially, a solution space for that on the web or digital devices. It might be worth talking about how we got to responsive design. If you, if, yeah, for sure. I, I've been involved in web design for an awfully long time. It seems like an awfully long time. And when I when I started to design uh, for websites first, there was very few layout options, very few um, ways in which you could present complex information laid out with complexity, like images and columns and, and nicely spaced. And so the the workaround people had was to use frames, which were a document that, that pulled on other uh, web documents. This wasn't a very satisfactory solution as, for instance, if you used Alta Vista or Ask Jeeves in the day to find this website for you, they might only find the web page that had the menu on it, or they might only find the web page that had the footer on it, and then you'd get a, served a, a broken website. So uh, with advances in HTML, people started to design in tables. Uh, tables were available, obviously, for numerical information initially, but designers realized they could put images in the table cells and use a table to lay out a grid-like format for a website. And then website design started to get quite uh, visual as a result of that. And uh, the sort of visual advances, graphic designers got more interested in the the possibilities. Uh, People used Photoshop to design what a website would look like, and then they could carve it up into table cells and present it. But this was not very well optimized for the web either, and and it could take a long time to download really tables are, are meant for the presentation of numerical information screen reader would be very confused by a table filled with images when really what it was looking for was uh, well laid out tabular information, you know? So with the arrival of CSS or cascading style sheets, the ability to place content around the page in a more reliable way um, became uh, available to designers working in the web. To cut a long story short, this wasn't entirely satisfactory either. And the, the, the reason being that your options were to have a fixed width page in which case everything existed in, in a prearranged uh, order on the page. Or you could make what was called a fluid page, so that if you grabbed the bottom right-hand side, uh, bottom right-hand corner of a browser page and resized it, everything would kind of collapse in a way where you could still see some of the content. It didn't tend to be the case that any website worked particularly well at all screen sizes. You could only account for so much, and it tended to be, it was typical that in a design brief, you would be asked to design for a certain size of browser window. 
based on an understanding of who your audience might be. Uh, over time, this tended to get larger, not smaller, as more people got larger screens, as it was more typical for more companies to buy in larger screens for their office workers. And it really kind of got out of control. It was kind of a, a sort of you're chasing technology in a way. The mobile revolution hammered that down. And not only was it very difficult to serve these bloaty websites through mobile devices over network connections, sorry, not, not broadband network connections, but SIM cards, essentially, telephone networks. So that became so difficult that there became a lot of pressure for people to tidy up their practices. In tidying up their practices, the idea of responsive uh, websites came on board as a response to uh, universal design and also a response to what was called responsive architecture. The idea was that finally a web page um, might be conscious of the size of your screen or conscious of the size of your browser window and uh, not collapse in a way that you couldn't read the content anymore. Uh, and so this development allowed designers to make uh, designs which weren't fixed or fluid, but were sort of a, a pre-thought out, a well pre-thought out combination of both. Yes, the, the content might move around the pages if it was fluid, but certain things would say, stay at a fixed size, like the, um, the text would be large enough for you to read, or it might even get larger considering the fact that you're on a very small device. And so this technology... Ha- became very, very popular very, very quickly. And if you can think of a, a website like a, a website you use typically, but a website that's been around for a long time, something like a newspaper site like the irishtimes.com, if you were to look at that web page now and grab the bottom right-hand corner of it and drag it up and to the left, you'll see that the content will rearrange itself in a pleasing way. While some content may seem to disappear, mostly it's been moved, let's say, to the bottom of the page if it hasn't been prioritized as highly as other content. Um, but if you were to look at the Irish Times website a few years ago, and you can do this with using archive.org, uh, the Wayback Machine and archive.org, you can find examples of popular websites from years ago. You just go back a few years, you'll see they'll have a very nice website. But if you were to do the same thing and grab the bottom right-hand corner, while it might be fluid in some regard, once the browser got below a certain size, you'll start to lose uh, the website off off the right-hand edge. And so most of the websites we use now, maybe all of the websites we use now are responsive to the point that you wouldn't really think of it as responsive design. You'd just think of it as web design. It really is ubiquitous. If you look to look at all the UCD websites, for instance, so everything connects to UCD Connect now. I was scrolling through them today. I couldn't find anything that wasn't responsive anymore. But it's still quite new. Only a few years back, uh, we had far uglier websites to look at on a, on a regular basis. I'm thinking learning management systems here, but let's take that topic up later. Um, it's interesting, I think, what you've observed around the frame table paradigm as it was used was just designers striving to replicate the affordances of paper. Those things are good in, in themselves, but they're still not universal design as such, but they are an improvement. Universal design, uh, uh, having all the, the, the different elements to it, is perhaps not so easy to apply um, to the, the limited kind of visual scene of, of the two-dimensional world of, of web design. The first one is equitable use, which is very straightforward. You know, the idea that everyone should uh, equally have access to, to information and they shouldn't be at a disadvantage for any particular reason. But as, they go, as you go down the list, some of them are, are kind of harder to kind of uh, resolve with web design. Flexibility in use, simple and intuitive use, perceptible information, that, that's all very much the, the territory of the information designer and the graphic designer, the web designer. Then things like tolerance for error, uh, low physical effort. Uh, you, you can see analogs for, for those, some of those things. 
in web design, you might think about, oh, you shouldn't have to click for very long to get to something or the size and space for approaching these, you know, there should, uh, information should be scannable. I guess you could, you could think of something like that or, or you should chunk information in a particular way. So, I mean, there is ways you could think of universal design principles and apply them to this problem. But as you know, in universal design, what tends to have happened is different flavors of universal design would be developed to different lenses through which you could look at different kinds of fields of design. And while there isn't a universal design as such for web design, obviously there is a universal design for learning. Um, as you go through the universal design principles, which apply to everything from the physical world, the built world, products through to digital, I think some of those, um, certainly the early principles, one down to four, let's say, can be kind of built into the infrastructure you use to develop digital goods and services. And then as you get into the higher order design principles, I think this is where the design team for the product or service that we're talking about has more judgment and say in how it's implemented, the design, like low physical effort, uh, building intolerance for error. Those sort of things aren't all built into the tools you use necessarily. That's the way you use the tools. Well, I, I kind of think of it like that. Those, those principles, the first four is to say, if you're if designing a building, you might be thinking about uh, the way into the building, the, the, the stairwells, the, the, the elevators. But when you get to things like low physical effort, you might start thinking about how does an electrician maintain services in this building? And it, it starts to become about how, the, the nuts and bolts, as you say. And so, yeah, in terms of universal design, there, there is a, a service side uh, issue as it relates to information made available electronically. There are all kinds of issues that go way beyond the, acti- the typical activities of the web designer. I suppose just the history of web design you can often see there's the history of one person working alone, but it moves towards a situation where larger design teams are involved, a larger infrastructure is needed. Kind of the period of, uh, of one designer working alone to produce something in their, in their bedroom, so to speak, was very much a kind of a, a narrative from the ni- early 1990s. And so uh, providing all of these sort of supports is beyond the, the individual designer in some sense. You do need kind of institutional support to really understand all of the the issues involved but still there's that the design deliberate design design action is you're responsible for where you put the form how uh, where you put the drop down list how, where you put the compulsory fields how many you have per screen on learning management the lms or learning man, learning management systems that we have available to us they perform better or worse at different points because in a way they're hybrid systems, aren't they? They've got different levels and different kinds of functionality built into them that doesn't always integrate within a single design paradigm. Yeah, absolutely. Each of those services we use, while they might have some standalone uh, features, uh, they're often um, integrated within a series of of services provided by different vendors. So you you often have like the difficulty of just how one, um, even if it was well thought out uh, solution has to marry uh, to another um, and the differences between them uh, can create real usability problems for for people uh, at the front end. Well, certainly examples from the NCBI where they'll have, they they do audits of of web apps and applications, uh, smartphone apps, and unless you're operating, let's say, the system completely blindfolded or with the screen turned off, we take a shortcut here and there. And as you say, if you're marrying two different systems, the systems in isolation might work well, but in the, the link between them, there may still be a 
need to click on a particular pixel somewhere or a particular part of the page that a visually impaired user wouldn't have access to. Absolutely. I mean, um, if you're thinking of the kind of the just how things work in terms of mobile design these days, if if you have um, uh, an app, let's say on your mobile device, a, a native app which is kind of designed for that device. That, that app is likely to have access to the services available on the phone, the security on the phone, the contact list on the phone. But if you're running a web-based app, which, which often is just this, a design skin on, on a website, the web-based app doesn't really have access to those services. And if one gets handed off to the other, it can really trip itself up. That's a real sort of problem in the mobile experience. So I've got this, uh, I think it's an example, and it's to do with Brightspace. So Brightspace is a great LMS and it looks seamless when I'm working on my PC. But if I'm using Pulse to access Brightspace off my smartphone, it also looks amazing, but it looks very different. And then when I enter a course, so it's it's not what I would have been familiar with on the in the classroom on a PC. It looks great still. I, I can kind of see where these elements come from. But if I go beneath that that surface layer, maybe one or two clicks, I'm now brought back to that, as you say, the website, and it's not the app anymore. And then it doesn't seem to make use of the device anymore. It seems to be stuck in that kind of general HTML mode. Absolutely. So if you talk about responsive design, I might have mentioned this, or we might have mentioned it called mobile first. So responsive design was a, a, a response to, much as anything, the, the failures of, of the kind of design methods on the web previously and despite the success of responsive design the the native idea of it is that ultimately uh, you can reduce the page as much as you like uh, and you still retain um, the information uh, you want you want to have access to so along the way i'm not quite sure who came up with this concept but along the way the mobile first paradigm was suggested rather than designing for large screens and accepting and building in ways for them to fail gracefully, you should start thinking about the mobile device as the primary method of delivery and scaling up your designs or allowing your designs to scale up. And that changes that changes everything. Uh, it, it does mean that we can have fully functioning LMSs in a phone, but there might still be some problems in relation to how those are implemented. For instance, a website on your phone, as you suggest, isn't going to be able to take advantage of all the features of your phone, not like a native app will. And if we try to web those two things or, or web those two things together, there's going to be some difficulties at the, the, the point of intersection, um, at the handoff. This, this is something you can see in relation to even if you're using, let's say, Google products. If you're on a desktop and you move between different um, Google services, that, that could be quite seamless. If you uh, move between Google services on a mobile phone, uh, you might find that you run into that same problem. It, it doesn't detect or persistently detect who you are moving from one application to the next. Even if you get around that, while you might be able to handle other kinds of handoff, like from the LMS to Google Docs on a desktop, you might well run into trouble with that on your mobile phone. As again, you step outside the sort of secure device-friendly space of a, of a native app and enter a web app or a responsive website, which looks good on your mobile phone, but doesn't have the same privileges as the native app does. It strikes me that a sighted user is presented layout, color, aesthetics. In a sense, the visual gets itself tied into knots. 
And I suspect that if I was using VoiceOver or a screen reader where it's focused purely on the informational content, I might even have a better experience. Well, as, as you suggest, I mean, if uh, the designer of, a, of the mobile experience um, and the designer of the website, which includes the ability to have a mobile experience, aren't uh, working together, then it's not likely that those experiences are going to uh, work very well uh, together. And similarly, if they're not applying the same kinds of principles, like those kinds of universal design principles and understanding, maybe that somebody might well uh, be using some kind of uh, tool to navigate uh, through the content, then you're going to run into even greater trouble. So that, that you've reminded me also of this issue with multi-platform uh, apps and services. Is this kind of mode switching that occurs? So let's say the app, the smartphone app-driven experience, the user acquires over time, learns the design paradigm that's in play. It could be a menu-based system. It could be a, a sort of spatial system. It could be buttons of some kind. And then when they... When that switches into another mode, that's disconcerting. Absolutely, it's a, it's a you know it's a little bit of a shock. Users who are very very familiar with something, you think of them, or in the past you used to think of them as power users, you know, and those uh, power users uh, they, they would go with you no matter what because they're so uh, connected to the uh, service or the the tool that they they're not going to be shocked by the the little tweaks that appear over time. But then. If you were ever on a, a, a Photoshop user forum in the 1990s, when the background gray would get tweaked to a little bit lighter or a, le- a little bit darker as default, um, the horror uh, with which these changes are met by people who use things regularly. Uh, really, you could, you, could, you could slightly darken an interface and a person could end up completely lost, a person who is familiar with where uh, things are and is comfortable with those patterns can be really, really confused by a tiny change even when that change hasn't actually disrupted the patterns. So what we we often do is we often test uh, design innovations against people who haven't seen the tool before. And and that way you test whether a person might report that it was uh, quick and easy to find a particular piece of information in a particular series of clicks uh, in a particular um, way. But you don't, you don't, not as much effort is put into the, the typical user or, the, or the, the experienced user of a platform because it's understood that they know so much about it, they're, they're not going to be, let's say, objective. But um, uh, what's lost in that perhaps is the fact that um, these small changes can really disrupt a person's use of a tool. And uh, familiarity is an extraordinary quality to have with a complex system. Like w- The problem is we are capable of uh, mastering extraordinarily complex systems uh, when we're familiar with them. But <laughs> when we're unfamiliar with them, we find uh, relatively simple systems very difficult to get used to um, or very very difficult to get the most out of quickly. Uh, and so that, that uh, certainly design should take account for both the, the fact that some people are extraordinarily new to a system and some people uh, require the require to build familiarity with that system and for those things to remain somewhat consistent. I'm reminded of Microsoft's word processor and the menu structures are kind of locked in at this stage uh, where they've innovated is on their ribbon navigation and perhaps also shortcut keys to a lesser extent. I think people get locked into them. But as you say, 
it's hard to innovate once you've got an installed base and small changes can discommode a large number of users. You know, it often involves rebuilding the tool from the ground up. And one of the things that disturbs power users is that if they have, for instance, learned all the shortcuts and the shortcut keys combinations for the tools and those things stop working, it can, make, it can really um, make uh, say the optimized use of a, of a tool very, very difficult. But uh, yeah, uh, you know, you talked about Microsoft. The, the adoption of the ribbon was extremely difficult for for many users. Um, however, if you look at it now and you see the ribbon across their entire product line, it does seem like it's something that people over time probably have come very comfortable with. Our new users probably um, uh, like its uh, bold color and uh, clear scannability and all these uh, other things. But uh, yeah, it was uh, very difficult to get used to for somebody who's been using. Uh, word for it for a long time and uh, it's just looking to try to find out how to save a document. <laughs> I think our class would uh, would agree with you there that some things are incredibly hard to find sometimes, particularly when you're in a hurry. Um, thinking in terms of the style sheets, how to generate bibliographies, some of these advanced features which exist in a number of places, the ribbon, the menu system, and sometimes multiple tracks on the menu system because that, that history means that they can't really reorganize things too much. Uh, we're kind of nearly ready to wrap up, Niall. Um, I've got a random question at the end I'd like to pose you, though. The Disability Act 2005, Ireland, and it's, it's written in law to advance and support the participation of people in society with the provision of specific services. How actively do you think we are? Are we pursuing addressing the act as a as a university well um i suppose in my experience we, we've um uh, we've done pretty well in terms of what you might call the first principle of of universal design the, the equitable use i think the focus of the the act is around the idea that nobody should be discommoded that everyone should have equal access and equality of access that leaves a lot of space in terms of what we've talked about in terms of uh, uh, universal d- design um, universal design for learning is very much an accepted part of what the university's TNL services provide. They encourage instructors to use universal design for learning as a methodology for, for structuring their, their, their teaching and learning. Um, looking through the website recently, I found references to plain language, uh, that documents should be presented in plain language, which obviously is very useful as, a, as an accessibility issue as well. And, and there is, on the policy base, the acceptance of equitable use. Um, in terms of how that's implemented, I, I think there, there's there's plenty of documents which give guidance. I don't know if, if we all succeed uh, all the time in terms of following that guidance. I, I know that you have and I have uh, both had an experience with UCD lifelong learning of, of pursuing a badge in uh, universal design for learning, and that's something they offer to all staff. But I suppose it's very much an uphill struggle to build uh, awareness about the idea of accessibility for all. And I suppose then in relation to disability, there is a disability service which works with students to try to meet their needs. In relation to the um, online uh, systems and through learning materials and everything, the new system is, is very well thought out, or, or, or I would argue better thought out in terms of uh, how information is presented that's not to say it meets uh, all of our needs in terms of universal design. There's a lot for individual practitioners and instructors to do in terms of how they would present information within the system. But there's been a recent uh, improvement in the sense of the addition of uh, Blackboard Ally. That that system 
is built in now to the learning management system. And what it does is it, it looks at the content that's been placed by instructors in, in particular sections and gives a report on whether uh, that meets some of the needs we've been talked about in terms of it being screen readable. And it gives a, a report on that. And instructors now, will, will, without making any other effort, will be able to see those reports on the content that they've placed in the system. So that should raise awareness at least as to whether the content um, that's being uh, published there is going to be equitable in use. Yeah, I've been very impressed by uh, the, the the integration of Blackboard Ally or Ally into Blackboard. And just, just as a kind of aside, Ally is A11Y, and it's the acronym for accessibility. It's a coded word for accessibility. Um, yeah, no, that, that is a, a, an improvement. And as, as, a, as a lecturer myself, I can see my own materials, how well or poorly they're meeting the requirements for screen readability and metadata and semantic information integrated into the PowerPoint slides. It's great not to have to pull a report on that. You know, the fact that that information is there for you in the interface, it really increases the likelihood that it's going to be used. With the uh, student user being able to download and select different formats for reading, for viewing, um, from tag PDF to HTML to EPUB, electronic braille, audio, and machine read. But as you say, there's a lot more we can do. Well, look, thank you, Niall. Much appreciated you making the time available to talk to the class today.